0: It's a piece of imagery that is popular around Halloween and Valentine's Day. The red, horned, impish figure with a two-pronged fork. Over the years, it has been a symbol of rebellion, power, pleasure, and wealth. On Halloween, those clad in its likeness, delight in and the rebellious nature of the costume symbology. Empowered by the ultimate taboo, it often represents. On Valentine's Day, it's a symbol of the more carnal elements of our nature, those which throughout history, society has pressured us to repress. Its likeness can be found on everything from chocolates to alcoholic beverages and often has a certain element of playfulness about it. Tempting us with treats, its impish smile wields a certain mystique and power. It's a symbol whose true meaning likes to hide about in plain sight, its presence often lost in the details. The devil is a creature which throughout most of history has been deeply rooted in the folklore and belief systems of much of the Western world. It is commonly seen as the adversarial type, one which is the antithesis of morality. It often represents the desire for power, wealth, and the pleasures of the material world, which many spiritual leaders hypocritically say, is a horrid sin. For some, it represents the release of inhibitions and the gain of personal power. It's a symbol of free thinking, the freedom from oppressive beliefs, and a vehicle for self-empowerment. There are others who believe it's an energy which can be tapped into, manipulated, and used to bring about personal gain. There are even those who believe that it's not just a mere force, but an entity. One which bodes a dark, chaotic, and destructive power. One which can exist both on the spiritual and physical plane one which destroys as easily as it creates. It's this version of the devil which gets the most impassioned reactions. There are many who vehemently believe that it is a true threat to humanity, a predator who feasts on souls rather than flesh, a predator which has been on the prowl since time itself. For others, it is seen as an ends to a means, and for a fee, it will help you and bring into fruition your deepest desire. All it requires is a small payment, your soul. The latter has been a classic cautionary tale in folklore and legends and can be traced all the way back to the 6th century. It seems to have all begun around the year 538 CE with a Roman cleric known as Theophilus of Adena. Theophilus was an ambitious cleric who was working his way up the church ranks, and after some years, had managed to make quite a name for himself. When the church was in need of a new bishop, his peers unanimously nominated Theophilus for the position. Now, while this may have seemed like an answer to his prayers, in actuality, Theophilus had no interest in becoming a bishop. It was a position that required a considerable amount of responsibility and an exhaustive public display of piety. Instead, Theophilus had his sights on the position of archdeacon, a far more comfortable position, one which also allowed him to dip into the collections box. To avoid this unwanted and cumbersome position of bishop, Theophilus devised a plan. When offered the position before his peers, he put on quite the performance, playing the role of the pious cleric. In what he thought would be an admirable display of humility, he humbly turned the position down, stating that his rival would be a far greater and holier man for the job. The other man quickly accepted, and Theophilus was certain that his humble and pious act would put him in good graces with the new bishop. In Theophilus's eyes, the man owed him a debt of gratitude. During the next few weeks, Theophilus made it known, in what he thought was a roundabout yet humble way, that he felt called to the position of archdeacon. Feeling certain that the new bishop, out of gratitude, would grant him this one humble request, Theophilus was absolutely shocked when the bishop assigned another man to the position, thus locking poor Theophilus in the role of lowly cleric. Theophilus was enraged over this incident and saw this as an act of betrayal. He soon regretted ever giving this horrible man such an advantageous position. And he soon saw the entire church as a corrupt institution that was purposely trying to destroy his future. Thirsty for revenge, Theophilus sought out a necromancer and hired him for the task of helping him contact the devil. It's unknown exactly how the necromancer went about helping Theophilus contact the devil. But whatever the method, the attempt was apparently successful. The devil appeared, and Theophilus laid out his demand. He wanted to see the current bishop in ruin and also wanted the position of bishop for himself. The devil agreed and said all would be so as long as Theophilus agreed to denounce the Holy Trinity and pledge his soul to him. Theophilus agreed, and the devil presented him with a contract and a pen with a sharpened tip. Theophilus pricked his finger with the pen and signed the contract in his own blood. Thus, the deal was sealed. The devil told him that he would collect his debt in due time. But until then, Theophilus must keep the contract safely hidden away. If any effort were made to destroy it, Theophilus would perish. The devil was true to his word, and within days it came to light that the bishop had been abusing his powers. And the scandal and uproar it caused led to not only the loss of his position, but the loss of his place within the church. A week later, Theophilus's peers had once again unanimously elected him for bishop. This time, he graciously accepted. Though he sought out the position of bishop solely for vengeful purposes, Theophilus soon found himself haunted by the dark deal he had made. It was as if the severity of his actions and their true consequences had suddenly come into realization. Worried for his soul, Theophilus confessed his actions to a friend, who was also a priest. The priest, who was genuinely fearful for his friend's soul, immediately sprung into action. He told Theophilus that these contracts are not always permanent. And if he was truly repentant, the kind and merciful God would forgive him. But the most important thing to do was to destroy the contract. If either the signer or the devil destroys the contract, it will become null and void. Later that evening, Theopolis and the priest found a private spot in the churchyard and worked together to gather sticks and material for a fire. The priest consecrated the ground with holy water, carefully piled the sticks while saying a prayer, and then lit the fire. The wood was nice and dry, and the flames rose quickly. Then. Theophilus and the priest clutched their crucifixes and said a prayer together. After the prayer was finished, Theophilus hesitantly held out the contract as if he was fearful of what was about to happen, but then gathered his strength and tossed it into the flames. The flames rapidly rose, and as this happened, Theophilus smiled and raised his hands up into the air and said to his friend, I've been forgiven. After which, Theophilus collapsed to the ground. It seems the devil was true to his word about one other thing. If the contract was destroyed, Theophilus would die. Not all of these stories of such pacts end with regret and rejection of the deal. There are those who happily make such pacts in trade for the fruition of their dreams and desires. In fact, most of those who seek a deal with the devil do so for fame. And it seems that in many of these tales, the devil seems to have a soft spot for musicians. History is filled with stories of musicians with almost unfathomable talent. Those whose compositions and performances outshone the rest. Those whose musical range was unequal to anything which had come before or after their appearance on stage. It is said to be one of, if not the, most difficult pieces to play on the violin, one which very few can play accurately. It's known as the Devil's Trill, a 16 minute long, hauntingly beautiful and astonishingly complex piece of classical music. The piece is so difficult to perform due to the range it requires of the violinist, often requiring them to play simultaneously on two adjacent strings, all the while increasing the tempo. It's enough to put most fingers in knots. The Devil's Trill is more than just a striking piece of music. It's also an interesting story. The Devil's Trill was composed around 1713 by Italian composer Giuseppe Tartini. Now Tartini was well known during his time as not only being an incredibly gifted violinist, but also as being a brilliant mathematician. He not only composed hundreds of complex violin pieces, he also contributed to the science of acoustics, all based on his love of algebra and geometry. Tartini is the one who discovered something called the difference tone. The dictionary definition of it is a tone whose frequency is equal to the difference between the frequencies of two tones generating it. To break it down in easier terms, It's a lower tone that is heard when two higher notes are played with steady intensity. Once Tartini discovered this, it became a signature part of his sound, something which set him apart from all the rest. During his time, Tartini seemed to most as if he was this brilliant light that seemed to have appeared out of nowhere. It was as if, without warning, this man and his brilliance suddenly took center stage. For many composers of his time, there was often a notable rise to their fame. With Tartini, it just seemed as if, suddenly, he were there, this beautiful enigma. There were many at the time who believed that Tartini must have made a deal with the devil. There was no other explanation for how this brilliance could have taken the musical world as suddenly as it did. Now, while that notion may seem rather silly, Tartini shared that during his life, this was perhaps the case. And according to him, it was how his most famous composition the devil's trill came into fruition. In 1713, Tartini had a most peculiar dream. He dreamt that he had awoken in his bed to find the devil standing next to him. In the dream, the devil told him that he had heard Tartini's desperate thoughts that night and told him that he could make his dreams of becoming the best and most wealthiest violinist of his time, a reality. The devil told Tartini that he could give him fame, wealth, and all the earthly delights that come with it. All Tartini had to do was renounce his religion and pledge his soul to the devil. Tartini agreed to the pact, and the devil gifted him with a skill and musical knowledge far beyond that of which any violinist before him had ever displayed. Curious as to if the devil himself could play, Tartini handed his violin over to the beastly looking creature before him and asked if he would play him a song. To Tartini's utter dismay, the devil ran the bow across the strings, and produced the most exquisite musical piece Tartini had ever heard, or thought possible. The composition was beautiful. It went from subdued to frenzy in such calculated complexity that it created a sound that seemed to grab at his very being. After he awoke, Tartini, immediately began trying to compose and replicate that haunting performance he had heard. And though Tartini's rendition is magnificent, he often lamented that it was rubbish compared to the composition he had heard the devil play that night. In Tartini's own words, he said of the event, One night... In the year 1713, I dreamed I had made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a Santana, so wonderful and so beautiful, Played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me, and I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain... The music, which I at this time composed, is indeed the best I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill. But the difference between it and that which moved me is so great that I would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had been possible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me. If you have ever wondered why we often hear tales or see images in which the devil is portrayed yielding a fiddle or violin, this particular tale of Tartini and his devil's trill is where that originated from. The devil is an interesting character. One who has often been portrayed as the artist's muse. However, the devil has quite a fascinating history, and the way this character has evolved throughout time and how our attitudes towards it have changed makes for quite an interesting tale in of itself. The devil certainly didn't start out the way we know it today. Like the beast itself, The origin of the devil is quite a tricky one to pursue. It is full of twists, deceit, and often provides no better example of the folly of man. The devil you know today is primarily a Christian construct with ancient Iranian, Greek, and Roman influences. Our main associations with the devil comes from the ancient Iranian religion, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest continuously practiced religions in the world, and it predates 6th century BCE. Zoroastrianism was formed by the brilliant Iranian religious reformer Zarathustra, or, more commonly known by the Greek form of his name, Zoroaster. Now, along with creating this religion, Zoroaster is also known as being the teacher of Pythagoras. Zoroaster was a brilliant mathematician amongst many other things. Zoroastrianism is a mostly monotheistic religion, which incorporates dualistic elements. In Zoroastrianism, there are two main deities. The benevolent creator, which represents the forces of good, Ahuramasta, and the destructive, Angramanyu, who represents the chaotic forces of evil. Angramyu is said to be a terrifying creature to behold. With the head of a man capped with sharpened goat horns, the body of a black stallion, the wings of an eagle, and the long whipping tail of a lion. In Zoroastrianism, there is an ever-present battle between the benevolent Ahura Mazda and the destructive Angra Manu, as the forces of good and evil are always battling for dominance. It's believed that those who dutifully worship the benevolent Creator God, Ahura Mazda, and lead a life free of the temptations of sin, will enter heaven living in eternal happiness with their Creator. However, those who are tempted by the evil ways of the Angra Manyu will have to go to the darkened underworld, forced to spend the rest of eternity being tortured, never to know the love of the divine creator. In Abrahamic religions, their concept of heaven, hell, and the battling forces between God and the devil were heavily influenced by Zoroastrianism. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all have roots in Zoroastrianism. Much of the attributes and imagery that we associate with the devil, came from Zoroastrianism's Angra Menu. When Alexander the Great conquered the Persians in 331 BCE, Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, gets incorporated into Zoroastrianism, merging his attributes with Angra Mainyu. This is where the imagery of the devil sitting on a black throat, wielding a two-pronged fork, came from. The integration of Hades into the character of Angramanyu gave the devil another characteristic as well. Hades was not just the morose god of the underworld. He was also the god of wealth and abundance. This is where the idea came from of the devil making you rich by buying your soul. The integration of Greek culture into Zoroastrianism also gave the devil another one of its important attributes, its origin story. The story of Zeus casting out the monstrous winged typhon was another bit of Greek culture that got absorbed into Zoroastrianism. In this story, Typhon was a giant winged serpent-like monster that rose up against Zeus, attempting to overthrow the god, thus making himself supreme ruler of the cosmos. The two fought a cataclysmic battle, but in the end, it was Zeus who triumphed by striking a thunderbolt into Typhon. The defeated Typhon was then cast into Tartarus, the deepest, darkest, lowest region of the underworld. This got incorporated into the story of Angra Manyu, as it fit well with that embattled duality between he and Ahura Masta. In this new rendition, in one mighty battle, the power-hungry Angra-Manyu attempts to overthrow the mighty Ahura-Masta. But he is defeated and cast down into the dark shadow world of hell. Centuries later, this story would be adapted to fit Christianity, with the Christian God casting the rebellious angel we know today as Lucifer or Satan out of heaven, along with all of his surly angel followers, thus giving us the devil and his minions, the demons. By the first century CE, the devil has evolved into a dark and powerful figure who reigns over a fiery underworld, torturing those damned to be in his presence by eternal burning in his fiery dominion. Have you ever been curious as to how the flames and burning bodies made it into the devil's story? Believe it or not, it comes from a real-life place in Old Jerusalem. It was called Gehenna. Gehenna was a disgusting, smoldering, rubbish heap in Old Jerusalem. It was a place where the area's waste was disposed of, including human waste. Due to the gases it would release during decomposition, the heap was known to combust, smolder, and burn for weeks at a time. During the hotter days of the year, the stench that permeated from this rubbish pile would make the surrounding area almost unbearable to be near. Gehenna was also a place where criminals would be taken to be executed and left to burn. A Gehenna execution was seen as the harshest punishment, as it was a humiliating death. Over time, Gehenna became a metaphor for punishment and over the years gained a more supernatural association. The fires of Gehenna became the fate which awaited the wicked in the afterlife, a dark and foul-smelling place where sinners would burn for all eternity. So, Gehenna, the combustible rubbish heap from Old Jerusalem, was essentially the inspiration behind the imagery and the tortures of hell. By the second century, the devil's imagery gets another update. Large bat-like or dragon-like wings. In fact, for centuries afterwards, dragons, in illustrations and stories, symbolized the devil. So when you hear those tales of Gallant knights, pure of heart, slaying the horrid dragon. It's essentially a metaphor for good triumphing over evil. Or in this case, God triumphing over Satan. In 323 CE, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. And it's during this time that the idea of the devil begins to evolve a little more. It's at this point where the devil gets another makeover and begins to wield new power. As the Roman bishops gain real power and influence, both politically and socially, they become obsessed with keeping it and all the luxuries that went along with it while Christianity was the official religion of Rome at that time, most of the population still worshiped the gods of old. During 323 CE, the most popular and celebrated of those gods was Pan, the horned and goat-legged god of nature and good times. In fact, the popularity of Pan was so high in those days that the bishops of the Roman church felt threatened. Fearful of losing their power, the bishops decided that they needed to find a way to unify the people under the state religion and keep a tight control over the thoughts and practices of the general public. Since Pan was their most serious threat the bishops decided to turn the lovable nature god into a goat-legged demon. They began illustrating the devil with Pan's most notable features. The devil then becomes a cloven-footed, half-man, half-goat-like beast with large sharpened horns upon his head, menacing facial features, and a third, lower half, like Pan. The church sold the deal by telling the people that nature, in all of its worldly delights, is controlled by the devil. They also informed the people that the gods and goddesses of the old religion had deceived them, and that they were really the devil's legion of demons. The people were told that if they worshiped any of the old gods or revered nature, that they were in league with the devil, which made them not only an enemy of the church, but an enemy of the state, a charge which would have serious repercussions. From then on, the devil was everywhere and the world was nothing more than temptation a platform for sin, and thus punishment. By the time the Middle Ages roll around, the church has successfully convinced its followers that the devil, in all of its evils, is real. And not only that, but the devil is incredibly powerful. Now, the devil doesn't just tempt you with sin, it can inhabit your very body and force you to sin. And because women were now viewed as the weaker sex, it was believed that they were particularly vulnerable for this sort of possession, and that some may even be purposely seeking it out. In the 1300s, before there were the witch hunts, there was the hunt for heretics. To make matters worse, the criteria for heretic was incredibly vague and essentially encompassed anyone who was different, of the wrong faith, or anyone who dared to speak out against or question the authority of the church. Those accused of heresy would be tortured until a confession was rendered and then would be put to death. It would soon progress even further, and the heretic hysteria was often a tool used for political gain, as was the case with the death of the Knights Templar. In 1307, Francis King Philip the Fair had grown envious and even threatened by the wealth and power of the Knights Templar to rid himself of this pest. He formally accuses them of heresy, stating that they had been seen worshipping a goat-headed idol, which he claimed was none other than the devil itself. The church was happy to execute the decree, as they too had been unhappy with the Knights Templar. See, the Templars, at this time, had been attempting peace negotiations with the Muslims in effort to put the long war at end, something the church did not want. So, on Friday, October 13th of 1307, the knights were hunted down and executed. This is also how Friday the 13th became associated with bad luck and evil forces. By 1320, the hysteria had reached new heights, and the fear of the devil and its influence grew to alarming levels. No one was safe from its grasps, and it seemed that in every village, there were even those who summoned the devil to do its bidding. To confront these growing threats, the Inquisition was told to target those who performed any type of witchcraft, sorcery, or necromancy. Not even priests were spared, as it was believed that those who performed exorcisms might very well be inviting the devil in rather than casting it out. Fear that sorcerers, necromancers, witches, and even renegade priests were all around, summoning the devil and plaguing the land with its dark forces, caused witch hunt fever to officially begin. The first case of a devil-conspiring witch caught by the Inquisition happened in 1324. In Ireland. The woman's name was Alice, and she was accused of dealings with the devil by her stepchildren. She and her stepchildren were in a heated dispute over an inheritance. The stepchildren, angered that this already wealthy woman was trying to keep their father's land from them, told the church that their stepmother was a witch and that she had killed their father with the help of the devil. Now, when Alice caught wind of what was going on, she immediately escaped and fled to England. However, her lady servant wasn't so lucky. She was captured and tried in Alice's place. The poor woman was brutally tortured until she confessed of her role in the devil magic. And then, she was burnt at the stake. This campaign to purge the world of devil-worshipping witches lasted 300 years and killed around 60 to 300,000 innocent people. By the 1800s, the age of modernism had begun, and with it, new interest in science. People begin pushing superstitions aside and focusing on what can be provable by science. It's during this time that the devil seems to lose his grip on the world and his evil powers begin to wane. He's no longer a fearsome beast and becomes more human-like in appearance. The devil during this time period is often featured as a tall, well-dressed individual. He is the controller of the material world, specifically in the areas of wealth, power, and sex. It's during the 1800s that the devil also becomes a bit of a deal-maker. He will give you all of which you desire in exchange for your soul. All you need do is ask. It's from this time period that many of the well-known stories of pacts and deals with the devil come from. The early to mid-1800s also brings about the Romanticism period, which gives us yet another view of the devil. During this period, Satan becomes a tragic hero and becomes a leader for rebellions. He is portrayed in art as a beautiful angel leading his army in the fight against unjust dominant forces. For some, he is a symbol of social reform, breaking up the smothering power of the monarchs and empowering the people. By the 20th century, the devil has once again evolved and undergone yet another change. No longer powerful or beautiful, the devil becomes a figure of jest. It now once again embodies more of Pan's attributes, a horned half-man, half-goat, cloven-footed creature that is associated with fun, food, abundance, and drink. This version of the devil is not fearsome, but is a rather impish-looking fellow, often wielding a mischievous grin. In illustrations, the devil now is often considerably smaller as well, often being depicted as being far shorter than humans. With its new associations with mischief and fun, Advertisers began using images of the devil to sell all matter of things, including beer and chocolate. Adding a dancing impish devil to packaging or adverts was a way that older brands could rejuvenate their image and increase sales. The image of the devil added an essence of alluring temptation. And of decadence and fun. It's during this period in time that the devil also changes color. It is now a red horned, black goateed, impish creature with a pointed tail and a two pronged fork. In the 1960s, the devil's path takes another turn, and it once again becomes a symbol of revolution. The beautiful rebellious figure of the Romanticism period comes back into play, and it once again becomes a symbol of uprising against unjust authority. And then, in 1966, the devil takes another turn. In 1966, showman and occultist Anton LaVey founded the church of satan a showy public rejection of the theocracy anton levey born howard stanton levey founded both the church of satan and the religion of leveyan satanism now while Levayan satanism does make use of ritual magic it is very important to note that Levian Satanism and its followers do not believe in or worship a literal Satan. It seems to be more about embracing those natural human behaviors that the church, for so many centuries, had sought out to oppress. All of those traits that were associated with and said to be influenced by the devil, such as desire, materialism, putting one's own self first, and taking part in earthly pleasure. For them, the devil in this sense is more symbolic. It represents individuality, free thinking, and personal freedom. In Levayan and Satanism, one is not really worshipping a deity, rather they are putting themselves as the center of their universe. More simply, having the highest reverence and value given to the self. Through history, the concept of the devil has been ever-changing, evolving, and morphing to fit the needs, beliefs, and attitudes of the times. For most of history, the devil was used as a tool to control the public, inducing fear of not only the creature itself and what it could do to your soul, but also of the persecution that opposition and differences could bring about in its name. In more modern times, the devil for many is still a devious creature to be feared. But it has also grown into something much more as well. It's a symbol of personal power and rebellion. Our almost cartoonish imagery of it shows that those deep-seated fears of our basic human nature don't seem to have as much hold over us as they used to. We know that life and all of the human experiences that come with it are not inherently good or bad, and the only thing controlling or judging those aspects of ourselves is us. Well, I want to thank you for listening to this episode and hope you enjoyed finding the devil in the details.